Why is this year different from all other years? The coronavirus. While you may not be able to physically gather around the Seder table this Passover, at least you won't have to scramble for a Haggadah. The Wandering is Over Haggadah from JewishBoston.com is available now as a free download, whether you're celebrating virtually with family or planning a Seder for one. Our Haggadah is available in two formats, a colorful PDF and a printer-friendly Word document that you can easily customize. Next year, in person. Until then, visit JewishBoston.com slash Haggadah. Shalom and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm Dan Seligson and I'm here, kind of, with my co-host Miriam Anzevin. Our studio today is the very small spare bedroom in my house that has become my home office and cell for the next few weeks or months because we're adhering to social distancing, so Miriam and I are co-hosting over the phone. What's up, Miriam? How's your home office? Hi, Dan. Yes, that's right. I'm only with you in spirit this time. This is the remote digital me. I'm actually sitting inside my closet amongst my shoes for best phone recording quality. Because like many of our listeners out there, I'm staying at home now because of the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm feeling isolated and disconnected, and I'm not ashamed to admit it, a little lost. So I'm really glad we are going to talk today to someone who's a personal hero of mine, with insights into many things, including how Judaism can help us in times of crisis. Your personal hero is named Sarah Hurwitz. She is the author, and this is the full title of the book, Here All Along, Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and a Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism After Finally Choosing to Look There. Sarah, a Boston-area native, helped define the Obama presidency through her brilliant speechwriting for both the president and the first lady, from 2009 to 2017. If that wasn't reason enough to talk to her, Sarah has managed in under 300 pages to explain the relevancy of thousands of years of Judaism to modern life in a way that seemingly anyone can agree with, which is some kind of a modern miracle. In doing so, she has inspired thousands of people, including me, to think about reigniting their interest in rituals, prayers, even studying the Babylonian Talmud every morning. In this very strange time of fear, social distancing, isolation, and a world that seems so unsettled, our talk with Sarah was a great way to ground ourselves. Times like this raise big questions, and as Sarah tells us, Judaism might not have answers, but it has guidance. We hope this conversation with Sarah proves to be an entertaining and educational respite for you, our listeners, during this incredibly challenging situation. Sarah's book is available from Amazon and other booksellers. It truly is the one book I've read on the subject that is, in my opinion, completely without flaw. Please enjoy our conversation with her. And from all of us at Jewish Boston, stay safe and be well. Thank you so much for joining us on the Vibe of the Tribe today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and and having me back again. Yes, exactly. Um, You're joining us again. We're having a little deja vu because you talked to us 
actually it was just last week. And since then, the world has turned completely upside down. We wanted to revisit the same conversation we had with you, but with the additional context of this new way of life we're all collectively dealing with. And your insights on Judaism can really help us grapple with this challenging time. But first, we want to ask, how are you doing? Oh, well, thank you for asking. You know, I I am heartbroken. I'm just heartbroken mm-hmm. at this tragedy that's unfolding and what appears to, you know, it seems like it's going to get a lot worse. So I feel a lot of fear and uncertainty, like I think most people do now. I, I feel outraged. I feel furious that I think much of this could have been avoided. So I feel all those feelings. Um, I also feel very moved. I'm seeing a lot of people stepping up to help each other out, check in on each other. You know, I have, I have a dear friend here in Washington, D.C. named Sarah Poland, who is the CEO of a vegan kosher soup company called Supergirl. And she, the minute she heard about what was happening in New Rochelle, New York, she spent hours and hours on the phone figuring out how to get them healthy food because she just wanted to help out and contribute to their community. So she figured out how to do that. You know, she is such a star. I just, just watching her at work. She's just one example, but you know, she, she shipped her vegan kosher soups all over the country. She has a whole vegan Passover menu. And she was like, I'm getting it to these people in need. That is so important to me. And she is maniacally OCD clean and just really germphobic and careful. So I just, you know, I, I know her food is safe. And so I just, just seeing her take that effort, I, I, it's, been incredibly moving, and that's one example among millions. So, you know, I'm heartened by that, but we are in for a very difficult time. Well, thank you for telling us about that mitzvah that your friend is doing, because that's it, yeah. it's really encouraging to hear about the steps people are taking right now to to cope with this as individuals and and as a community. So, I mean, let's let's talk about your book, and we're going to kind of revisit through this conversation what people are doing and what your thoughts are about the current situation around coronavirus. But let's first. Uh, wrote the topic of your book and really get into it. It's an amazing book about all these Jewish concepts, um, some, of which will, some of which will really help us during this current time. But what made you decide to write it? And given that it was so complex, the project was so complex, how did you stick with it? Yeah, so, so I grew up like, I think many Jews I know, where, you know, Judaism for me was sort of two dull, incomprehensible, high holiday services a year and a kind of long, boring Seder. And once I had my bat mitzvah, I was like, I'm not done. You know, I'm, I'm culturally Jewish. I'm, I'm Jewish by heritage. But I don't need to actually do this. Um, fast forward 25 years later, I broke up with a guy I was dating. And I had a lot of time on my hands. And I just happened to get an email from the local JCC here in Washington, D.C. about an intro to Judaism class. And I really signed up just to fill time. You know, it could have been a karate class or a ceramic class. It really, you know, I just thought, oh, okay, there's something I can do on a Wednesday night so I won't be alone in my apartment and I should learn something about Judaism. Very skeptical. But when I took that class, it just utterly blew my mind. I could not believe what I had been missing as a, you know, as a child. Like suddenly I was exposed to Jewish ethics, to Jewish spirituality and theology, to the really deep radical thinking behind Shabbat. It was so wise and intelligent and edgy and deep and had so much wisdom for me about how to be a good person and how to lead a worthy life and how to find deep spiritual connection. So I thought, okay, I need, I need to learn about this. So I read hundreds of books. I took 
additional classes. I started attending silent Jewish meditation retreats, which are actually a thing. Jews are silent for a whole week. It's very hard for them, but they, they somehow managed to do it. And I have to tell you, I found it very challenging to learn about Judaism as an adult. You know, there's no natural beginning in Judaism, right? Everything is hyperlinked to everything else. So I just found it so complicated to put everything together. Even a phrase like, the rabbi said, like, who are the rabbis? Oh, in the year 70, when the temple fell, the rabbis reinvented Judaism. Sorry, the, the temple. Oh, right. We used to sacrifice mm-hmm. animals at a temple. Well, why? Well, because the Torah says, okay, what's the Torah? It's like, oh my gosh, so much context. So I thought, you know, I'd love to write, I thought, like, where is the book that I need? One that covers the basics and that unearths the deeper insights. And so I thought, like, okay, maybe, maybe I could write that book. I'm a writer. Um, once I started writing the book, I found out just how hard it was. I, I now understand why that book didn't really exist. Um, very hard to do both things. Like there are some great intro books that really cover the how-to and the nuts and bolts. And there are many really excellent, super sophisticated kind of academic books about Judaism. There just isn't much in between. And so, you know, for me, the real challenge was like, how do you structure the book? Right? How, how, where mm-hmm. do you start? And how do you make it accessible for a beginner, but also really deep and edgy and with new insights for someone who's deeply observant and advanced. That's really important too. So I I Mm -hmm. wanted to do both and that was definitely a challenge. When you go through a process that's so complicated and you're going through so much source material, I wonder how do you kind of figure out how to write a book that's 300 pages, I think a little, little over 300 pages. How do you kind of go through the process of writing something that is the book that you wanted to read, that you always wanted to, to read about Judaism? Yeah. So what I did is I, you know, for each chapter, for each topic, I would just intensely, intensely read. I'd read thousands of pages of materials, really trying to figure out like what for me are the most moving aspects of this topic. And I'm very clear. I'm not a rabbi. I'm not a scholar. So I'm writing this as, you know, a thoughtful Jew in the pew, often not in the pew, you know, just a, a regular Jew who's wrestling with this and grappling with this. So I think the first thing I did was just to be very clear that this is not kind of a disembodied, authoritative book on, like, this is the Judaism. It really is an actual human being deeply wrestling with, with Jewish substance. So I, I read thousands of pages. I would then distill those thousands of pages into a couple hundred pages of notes. And I would then distill those notes into about a 50-page outline. And then I would distill that outline into a 20-page chapter. So it was uh, very, very challenging. I did a lot, lot of reading. I also did, you know, I also had rabbis and scholars of every denomination, every sensibility and background review each chapter. I probably had at least a dozen or so rabbis and scholars reading each chapter because I wanted to make sure that, that I was being fair, that I was, you know, aware of all possible arguments, opinions, you know, I... I don't know what I don't know. And I think that's true with really almost anyone learning about Judaism. Like this is such a deep, vast, rich tradition that you just, you don't know what you don't know. So I wanted to make sure that I wasn't missing things. And that was really helpful to me. Well, it doesn't seem like you missed anything to me because in the book, <laughs> you broached some ideas and topics that, you know, some members of the community may not be familiar with. Um, you hit upon so much. So you talk about practices like Hebrew for example, which is, um, meditation in nature for a one-on-one conversation with God. Uh, you also write about Jewish concepts of the afterlife, which I so appreciate as many people kind of incorrectly believe that Judaism proposes no afterlife at all. Um, 
And as you talk about in the book, it would take many lifetimes for anyone to fully wrestle with the profound expanse of Jewish ideas. So how do Jews who are heavily invested in Jewish learning, um, like myself, encourage others to gain more literacy without veering into accidentally shaming anyone for stuff they don't know yet or falling into the mistake of Jews explaining to them, which is something that I have done to Dan many times. I enjoy it. It's helpful. Thank you. (laughs) This This is so important, especially right now, when I think, you know, I imagine that in the coming weeks and months, many Jews might really be looking for grounding in Jewish tradition. They might really want to say, you know, I think I want to want to learn about this ancient tradition that has gotten so many people through so many times of crisis. Like this is, you know, in times of crisis like this, people often turn to their faith, to their traditions, their cultures. And I, I think that, so I think it's like particularly critical right now that we not, you know, that we not shame anyone or make anyone feel embarrassed. So for me, it was Mm -hmm. so important in my book to just be very honest, number one, about my own confusion, about my own struggling, about how I still feel like an imposter and how I, when I started out, I especially felt like an imposter. And I was always so worried that people were judging me or that they were, you know, watching me in a synagogue and, you know, they would see me when I messed up the prayer or didn't stand at the right time or sit at the right time or bow you know, I would go to Shabbat dinners and be so anxious that I was going to do the wrong thing and everyone would judge me. It would be so embarrassing. And this is the thing, like, I just found that, you know, it, when I just stop and say, look, you know, I'm kind of new to this. I'm still learning. Um, can you explain this to me? People are so open. And I think that's hard for someone with a name like Sarah Hurwitz and a personality like that. <laughs> I think people just assume, oh, you're this, you know, you're this kind of, you know, you talk with your hands, you talk quickly, you have this Jewy name. Of course, you know everything about Judaism. <laughs> and I, I didn't. I didn't even know what the Torah was six years ago. So I think when I said, look, I'm kind of a beginner. I don't have much of a background. Can you help me out? People were so open to that. I also think mm-hmm. in my book, I'm just really careful to explain terms that, you know, are might be unfamiliar to people in real time. So I might say, you know, Shabbat, which is the the Jewish day, the Jewish Sabbath is a day of rest from Friday night to Saturday night, right? You just want to do little subordinate clauses as you go around, go along. Um, so I think just kind of, you know, constantly explaining, assuming that people have no knowledge whatsoever. Because like, I think oftentimes what I'll find is that people who are more deeply engaged, they assume that everyone knows what the Torah is, that everyone knows what the Talmud is. That's not true, right? Many Jews, they know the Torah is a thing on the scrolls, but like, what, what is it? Who wrote it? You're like, what what does it say? The Talmud. Now you're getting into a pretty select group of folks. These are our key sacred texts. They're very important, but don't assume that people know those basics. It's really important that you actually kind of provide that, you know, that background. I also think what can be challenging is not just the the danger of shaming people, but the danger of people feeling like you're proselytizing to them. Because I think, you know, people... You know, like Christianity is the dominant religion in America. It's a proselytizing religion. So I think people often assume that, well, Judaism must proselytize too. We don't. <laughs> That's something we absolutely do not do. But I think sometimes Jews feel a little like someone's trying to force this down their throat or trying to make them observant or make them believe in God or something like that. And I think I try to tread really lightly and just say, look, you know, this is just something that I as a sort of, you know, skeptical person have discovered, I, you know. I would love to share it with you. And I, I will often share my own skepticism, my own hesitations, things like that. I think that can be helpful. 
You are so right. And so I want to revisit something I said before. I used the word mitzvah when I was describing the actions of your friend. <laughs> um, so I would like to define that a mitzvah is uh, technically a commandment um, given to Jews. We have 613 of them. But generally speaking, mitzvah is used to describe a a good deed, a kind deed. And that's definitely what your friend is doing. So I have, uh, you're totally right. So thank you. Um, I, and you know, it's funny, as, as I, as I learn more, I found myself not explaining things because I, because now I'm talking to a lot of folks who are knowledgeable. I can speak the jargon and now I'm really conscious of almost like code switching. Like if I'm Mm -hmm. in a, an audience with very, so, you know, knowledgeable kind of insider Jews, I'll say, oh, you know, davening at my shul, that, you know, where are you going to the Hagim? Whereas, right. you know, if I'm talking to folks who are not as knowledgeable, I'll say, you know, when you're praying in your synagogue, you know, where are you going for the holidays? It's just, just using those different, being conscious of vocabulary is very helpful. Yeah. So speaking of uh, misvote and doing good. Uh, you wrote in the book about how you thought you were a good person, but studying Jewish ethics made you realize that, you know, in your own words, you weren't a great person. Tell us about that realization. Yeah, I mean, man, it just feels so timely right now when we are yeah. hearing about doctors in Italy making these horrific ethical decisions when we're beginning to see, like, my God, could we be in that position? That suddenly ethics are becoming important. I think people are now making all kinds of ethical decisions about, you know, how do they handle, in, you know, laying off employees? What? How do you help your friends? How much do you help your friends? What are your obligations to people right now? It's, it's, you know, suddenly these these issues are coming up in sort of a, an hourly basis in a way that is so noticeable in our lives, and oftentimes. When we have these ethical dilemmas, when we're trying to balance truth with kindness, when we're trying to balance generosity with boundaries, we don't have any guidance, right? We kind of go with our gut, kind of just try to do the best we can, but we're not drawing from anything. And this is something that I really realized when I was studying Jewish ethics, that I thought I was a good person. I don't lie, cheat or steal. I follow the letter of American law. But studying Jewish ethics made me realize what a low bar that is. The ethic of modern American society is you do you as long as you don't hurt others. The ethic of American law is don't steal people's property, physically assault them, or infringe on their 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 rights. It does not say anything about generosity, honesty, kindness, maturity, wisdom, caring. I mean, there are so many ethical values that modern culture and modern American law have nothing to say about. It's really, that's where Judaism can really kind of fill in the gaps. And so, you know, I think a couple of examples, studying the thinking around, the Jewish thinking around speech. I mean, I could not believe how often I gossiped, how often I, you know, sort of inadvertently shamed people and sometimes deliberately shamed them. Um, you know, just the number of, you know, just something as simple as a scenario where if I, you know, if if you and I are colleagues and I, I get angry at you when we get into mm-hmm. a fight and then I just walk off and I and I call a bunch of friends, I think Miriam's the worst. She's a terrible colleague. <laughs> she's not smart. She's dishonest. She's bad at her job. So angry at you. And then you know, <laughs> the next morning, we come in, we make up. Total misunderstanding. Well, I just called five people and asked you. And what if those five people each tell a few people who each tell a few people? And what if, I don't know, a month from now, you are looking for a job and you apply 
to a company where one of those people heard about you works and they say, oh, Miriam, I heard some things about that woman. I can't remember when it was or what it, but maybe about her work ethic, maybe some integrity issues. That's just cool. And, you know, you're seeing the power of words, not just with gossip and shaming, but with like misinformation and disinformation with the coronavirus, right? Yeah. Right, you know, there's, it's like, there's a psalm, there's a quote from Psalms, which is the, you know, it, part of the Tanakh, which is sort of the, you know, it's basically our, our, our key holy text of which the Torah is, is part of it. So there is actually a verse in the book of Proverbs in the Bible that says, death and life are in the power of the tongue, which, you know, you can say like, really, you know, what you say is a life or death matter. Um, unfortunately, right now we're learning that it is misinformation has undoubtedly already killed people and probably will kill a lot more people. It is absolutely a life and death issue now, how we use our speech, how careful are we, how accurate are we in what we say to people, um, how kind are we, how loving are we. Very important ethical issue right now. I also think about chesed, which means loving kindness. And that is an, an ethical area in which Judaism says that, you know, when someone you you know, is sick or in mourning, don't just kind of casually send them a text. Don't just send flowers, but show up with them for them. Actually be physically present for them. Now, we cannot do that right now in a time of coronavirus. That is not safe. Do not physically show up for people right now. Not safe. But how can we be present for people? How can we show up for them online? How can we show up for them on a video screen? How can we show up for them on the phone? How can we really be really rigorous about showing up for people when they're struggling, about having a ministry of presence for them over the phone, through our computers, you know, to really when people are, are having a hard time to be just substantively, deeply, you know, compassionately present for them. That's something that Judaism demands of us. So I think studying those kind of Jewish ethics is it's changed how I behave. I mean, let me tell you, I mess these things up a hundred times a day still. I used to mess them up 120 times a day. So I think I'm I'm improving. You know, I, I think I, it has made me more conscious of the words I speak, made me more conscious of how I engage with people I know who are struggling. And I just think studying Jewish ethics has been a very important thing to me. It's it's really amazing to me um, the extent to which Judaism is informing what's happening right now. And I mean, you've, you've hit on it a few times already, but in this morning's uh, Daf Yomi, the daily reading of the Babylonian Talmud, there was this uh, conversation or debate about whether you should visit someone who's sick on Shabbat or whether you should make mm-hmm. Shabbat special and joyous. And then the other rabbi said, well, you should visit someone because it's you need to do a mitzvah on Shabbat and visiting someone sick you know, is, is what you should be doing. It wasn't exactly clear to me how it played out, but I, I was reading it and I said, wow, this is just... They nailed it. Like they, you know, they exactly what we're talking about now. How can you be there for someone when you right. can't be there for someone? So you know, I just to me your exactly. book exactly. It's like yeah, the, the, your book was so is is so relevant. I read it about a month ago, um, and I think I'm going to reread parts of it. And you know, for me, someone who lost interest in religious Judaism after my bar mitzvah and kind of remained interested through Israel in other ways, it was kind of the rise of anti-Semitism, the shooting at the Tree of Life in Pittsburgh that got me re-interested in Jewish learning beyond just sort of Jewish identity, you know, Israeli TV shows and 
uh, a good bagel. And I'm surrounded by people who are, you know, knowledgeable and observant. I've got rabbis and Jewish studies majors and others who've gotten me interested. So when I picked up your book and I read it, it was just very emotional, like reading the Daf Yomi this morning. I said, wow, Sarah really gets me. Sarah kind of was me. And you didn't know at that point that we knew each other and were on a first name basis. So, you know, like I mentioned, I'm now reading the <laughs> I'm reading the Talmud every morning, which is just bizarre. Um, and Miriam and I are going to do this Amazing. for the next seven years, Miriam. We've got seven more years of this. I like seven it. Seven and a quarter years. Seven and a quarter years. That is amazing. It really and by is the way, shocking. My Jewish, my Jewish, my Jewish learning.com sends out a daily email that has a summary of the page a day. And what we're talking about is the Talmud, which are these commentaries that interpret the Torah, which is our key holy text. They were developed around you know, the year zero to 600 or so, and they are a bunch of ancient rabbis who are reinterpreting the Torah kind of in light of having this ancient temple where we used to worship by sacrificing animals. The temple was destroyed by the Romans, and so now suddenly we had to interpret the Torah in light of the temple no longer existing, which mm-hmm. you know so much yeah. of Judaism was was rearranged was arranged around sacrificing animals at a temple. So now what do we do? And what those the commentaries those rabbis wrote are huge. They're like endless, like seven and a half years to study them just once a day, you know, one page a day. But they really do that really kind of laid out the, the legal thinking for Judaism that we've continued to base Judaism on for, you know, the eighteen hundred years or so, two thousand years or so that have followed. So you you know Studying or actually studying a page a day is very challenging. This is, you know, you need to learn ancient languages. It's quite hard. But myjewishlearning.com actually sends out a daily email with a summary of the page of the day. So that's a great way to engage with it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's been a really important yeah. part of this whole process. And it was it was triggered largely by, you know, reading your book and saying, wow, there's so much current information in here. I'm wondering, beyond me, uh, what are the reactions that you've gotten from people who have read the book? Well, it's so funny. I, when I first published the book, I was a little bit concerned that maybe people who are more traditionally observant might be offended. They might really disagree. I might get some pushback. And I really, I thought my book was more for people like you, right? You know, people who are like culturally Jewish, proud to be Jewish, don't really know what that means, show up a few times a year, eat the matzo ball soup, good enough. But that, that was my target audience. And, you know, those folks have definitely loved the book. They're like, you know, I've been looking to embrace Jewish tradition, but I don't know how. I just, it's tough. And, you know, it is tough, right? Like, that's why I read the 3,000, you know, I, I read the many thousand pages of, of books so that, you know, and sort of tried to distill it down just to help people with that. But what I've also been surprised by is that I've gotten a lot of feedback from very traditionally observant folks who said, oh, this book is for me, which I've said, that's so funny. Like, you weren't necessarily my target audience they said no 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 this book is for me like this book it's a fresh take on judaism i've it's given me a bunch of new insights you know i can see that you've done your homework you know i think that sometimes i think sometimes very traditionally observant folks get frustrated with you like me six years ago because i was so dismissive of judaism right it's like oh judaism is boring oh it's lame it's absolutely i'm I'm a cultural jew i don't want to you know and they get frustrated because it's it's you know, I was being very dismissive of this extraordinary 4,000-year tradition that is this incredible gift that I that many people have sacrificed for hundreds, thousands of years to hand down to me. And I think that more traditionally observant people who are really committed and, and love Judaism deeply find that frustrating, which I think is fair. But I think that now they read my book and they say, they see, wow, this has 
you know, this is a very conversational, accessible book, but it has 550 endnotes, many of which are quotes yeah. from Talmud and other ancient texts. Like, wow, she did her homework. And they see my love for Judaism. And they see, like, well, you know what? I don't necessarily agree with how she practices. I don't agree with some of the points she makes. But I see that she cares deeply about Judaism. She loves this. She's committed to it. And she has done her homework. So I think I've, I've really been very, very moved and very grateful for just the, the enthusiasm and the support and the love that I felt from traditionally observant Jews, as well as really disengaged Jews, as well as, by the way, Christians and Catholics and people of other faiths who read it and said, like, wow, this is so helpful to me. Right? Because, like, mm. Judaism has so much wisdom to offer people of all faiths, backgrounds, and none. You know, my chapter on death has really spoken to a lot of my non-Jewish friends who've said, oh, man, I wish I had these mourning rituals when my dad died, when my mom died. Like, it was so hard. I felt so alone and out at sea. And I wish I'd had all the community support that, that Jews provide. So I think, you know, I've been really moved by the reactions from people. You know, you've, you've written speeches for some very important people, but I think when you talked about concepts of the divine, you actually were a pretty good speechwriter for God, maybe, or something along those lines, because you just had this really great way. Of, <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> you had this great way of talking about uh, yourself. You wrote, I, I did not and do not believe that God is a supernatural being up there who controls things down here. I found myself toggling between exasperated atheism, hazy agnosticism, and spiritual but not religiousism, which is just such, a, you know, like kind of nailed it for me as well. And in the book, during your exploration of Judaism in various ways, you emerged with this very complex view of divinity. You questioned how you believed and you questioned if you believed. I wonder how did your definition of a divine presence kind of fit in with the rest of the Jewish journey that you've been taking? Yeah, I mean, I will be totally honest. I think it is so weird that we as Jews, we just don't talk very much about God. And we show up a couple times a year, we say the name of God a million times in our services, but we don't talk about what we mean. And, you know, we don't talk about spirituality. And I think there's this sense among many Jews that, you know, this is my culture or my heritage, but if I want spirituality, I need to, and, you know, I need to look elsewhere, right? I'll go to Buddhism or maybe Unitarianism or Burning Man or ayahuasca or meditation or yoga. You know, I just need to look elsewhere. That's not in Judaism. We don't do that. Yes, we do. We do it. We have 4,000 years of doing this. And I think the problem is, though, if you sit twice a year in a service and you're reading a prayer book that doesn't, that, you know, at least in my case, I would read our prayer book and I didn't have the background to understand the complexity and sophistication of the prayers. So I really got the impression that the Jewish God was a man in the sky who controls everything and rewards you if you're good and punishes you if you're bad. And it's either that or you're an atheist. Or maybe agnostic, and so I thought, well, I don't, I don't believe in this man in the sky. So okay, I guess I'm, I'm an atheist. Maybe I'm spiritual, but not religious. Whatever that means, you know, studying all these Jewish conceptions of God just totally opened my mind. You know, there are Jewish thinkers who say that God is everything. You guys are God. I'm God. Everyone around me is everyone. And everything around me is God. The homeless man I pass by in the morning, that man is God. That, that man is a manifestation of the divine. How much does that change how you interact with people if you really see them as, as God, as divine? There's Martin Buber who says that God is what arises between two people in deep human relations who are fully seeing each other's humanity 
what arises in those moments of deep connection between people is God. There's Mordecai Kaplan, a Jewish thinker who says that God is the process by which we, by God is the process by which we each become our highest and truest selves. So these are complicated, sophisticated, really moving to me ideas. And there are so many more where that came from. So once I started sort of looking into that, I began to, it began to open up my mind to what God could be, where God could be, how God could be. That, that suddenly I was like, oh, I don't have to believe in a being in the sky, which I just see disproven every day. Bad things happen to good people every day. I just can't, I can't buy that, that conception. But fortunately, that's, the Jewish conception is so much more sophisticated and complex. And we have this wonderful theological humility in Judaism, whereby we don't have a dogma of God. We don't have a creed of God. We don't have any statement that says, God is this, and you must believe this. Because we have the humility to say, wow, you're talking about something that is so much bigger than anything that our tiny little human brains could articulate. This is something so much bigger. We, we just have this humility of saying we can't cabin this in some phrase or creed. That's almost like idolatry. And I, I find that really moving. You know, I, I love the name Hashem for God, which mm. just means the name. It's, it's just, it literally is a word that means the name. Right? It, it, there's such humility there where you're saying... This is so big. All I can even, I can just, I can only just vaguely gesture it. Just say the name. I, I think that is so lovely. And I think between that kind of theological exploration and attending these silent Jewish meditation retreats, where after days of meditation and prayer, my mind really quieted down, and I just felt myself getting in touch with something that I can't articulate very well. I think I, the minute you start to talk about it, you sound like an idiot. It kind of cheapens it. But it really did feel like this force of boundless love. And I think, you know, it's something I tap into only at very fleeting moments, but it stayed with me since those retreat experiences. And I think it fills my daily life with such a greater sense of openness and awe and wonder. And so I think we have such rich theology, spirituality over thousands of years in Judaism. I think it is so critically important that we explore this because people don't have to go looking all to the ends of the earth to find deep spiritual connection. It's right here in Judaism. We just don't talk about it enough and we need to. You know, I, something I think really profound is happening in the world and, and it's affecting people very deeply. It's affecting relationships in their house. It's affecting how they interact with coworkers and with friends, um, even parents. You know, my parents are in Cambridge. I don't know the next time I'll see them in person. How do you think this sense of this divine and the sense of closeness and faith changes in times like this? Oh, it's such an important question. And I just, I'm so moved by what you said about your parents because I actually was lying awake last night thinking to myself, when am I going to see my parents next? <laughs> like, I just, I just, it was, and it was so heartbreaking to me. You know, I've never been in a position where I couldn't see my parents if I wanted to. But I, I think in a moment like that, you know, I do think that the, this is a time where I think a lot of people are looking for, for meaning, for a sense of, of comfort, of, of closeness, of being held. And I do think, you know, my sense of, of the sense of sort of needing the divine, I, I do think it changes at a time like this. Um, you know, I, I'm never going to be, I don't believe in a being who rewards and punishes people. I just don't think that's true. Um, I don't believe that there's a being who can do things that I ask for. Again, I, I've seen 
so many prayers go unanswered. I, I just will never believe in a God who does not answer the prayer of an abused child. I just don't believe in that God. Won't do it. Mm. Not interested. Can't take it. Find it. I find that just intolerable. So I just, you know, that kind of interventionist God, I just can't, I don't think exists. But do I believe in this animating energy in the universe? Do I believe in this, you know, this, this sense of boundless love? Yes. Do I relate to that as a you personally? Yes. Does that make any sense? No, it doesn't. I really, <laughs> you know, it doesn't. But my little heart and mine are very tiny and I can't relate to a boundless force. I just can't. I need to somehow personalize it in my mind. I need to relate to it as a you. So I think that maybe in a time of crisis, maybe we can kind of just give ourselves a little bit of a break with the, with the, need to be intellectual and cool and thoughtful and smart and all of that. Like we can, we can, when it comes to our spirituality, I think that that's how I've done it in a way where I've said, listen, do I think that there is a being in the sky? No, of course not. I think this is something so much bigger and, and so beyond my, my, my heart and mind, but do I relate to it as a you? Yeah, I do. And I find that helpful. And I think that one thing that a wonderful rabbi named Jordan Vendata Pell said to me, when I, I said to him, you know, Jordan, this just seems ridiculous to have this this new thing that I have going with this force. Well, what, what am I doing? It's just ridiculous. It's embarrassing. And he's like, you know, Sarah, the question isn't whether it's ridiculous, not ridiculous, rational, irrational. The question is, when you run it on your operating system, does it make you better? You know, does it make you more loving, more compassionate, more peaceful, more caring, more generous, braver, more courageous? Does, does it do that for you? If it does, like maybe that's actually the question to ask. So I think, you know, in a time of crisis and difficulty, maybe the question that we can ask is what, when we run this on our operating systems, what's helpful right now? I think the question of, you know, what's helpful, what's going to help us be a good parent, teacher, neighbor, healthcare provider, what do we need right now to help us get through these days with courage and compassion and, and resilience? And so I think that's really the key question in a time of crisis. So you write about how, you know, you struggle with prayer and services. Judaism is a communal religion, going as far as having strict requirements for how many people need to be gathered before specific prayers can be said. So how do you see Judaism responding um, to this social distancing and isolation we're seeing? And I mean, I'm thinking of the way in which the rabbis of the Talmud had to totally re reconstitute what Judaism was after the destruction of the temple and make Judaism portable in a way. Yeah. How do you see that now? I mean, what a great analogy, right? Like in this time of just epic crisis and tragedy, the temple was destroyed. I mean, this is, yeah, this is just a really important conduit to God where you would, you would take your animal sacrifices there. You would communicate with God. I mean, this was so central. This was destroyed. They had to reimagine and reinterpret Judaism to go forward without a temple. And I think, you know, I won't necessarily say the disruption of Judaism is as big as that, obviously, today, but this is a real disruption. And I am just seeing such innovation and, you know, creativity online where people are setting up things via Facebook and Zoom. You're seeing Shabbat services being streamed via Zoom and via all sorts of video services. I think that is so, like, everything that we can do by video is just so important, right? Like that is, you know, that like, you know, respond, doing communal events by video is huge. And like, how blessed are we 
to actually have this option. You know, if this crisis had hit 50 years ago, imagine how terribly isolated and alone we would be. We wouldn't be able to do group gatherings. Right? This is so, you know, fortunately, we have that option. I also think there, you know, there's so many options for people to learn right now. And what I found is that Judaism just has so much wisdom for times of crisis because we as a people have been through you know, our yeah. fair share of crisis and hardship. But I think that there's a lot of wisdom to be gained now in going back to ancient traditions and, and just the wisdom that they offer. And I think I'm thinking just in my book, there's a beautiful story which shouldn't be taken literally right now at this particular moment, but I think is very always moves me where basically Rabbi A was sick and Rabbi B came, took Rabbi A's hand and healed him. But then Rabbi B got sick. And so Rabbi mm. C came and took Rabbi B's hand and healed him. And the rabbi studying the story said, wait a second, Rabbi B was able to heal Rabbi A. Why didn't Rabbi B just heal himself? And the answer was that a prisoner can't get himself out of prison. And mm. I, I think that that is such a moving story. The, you know, this idea that sometimes we just can't get ourselves out of whatever prison we're in. You know, a prison of anxiety, depression, isolation, fear. We need someone to come and take our hand and heal us. And that's not possibly, that's unfortunately not possible for many of us literally right now. But can you reach out a hand to your computer? Can you reach out a hand to your phone? And can you get someone out of whatever prison that they're currently in at this moment? You know, what a beautiful, it's just this one small singular piece of Jewish wisdom but how powerful it is. And there are millions and millions and millions of little pieces of wisdom like that scattered throughout our tradition and they're ours. And now it can be a really powerful time to start discovering them. So speaking of some of that wisdom, are there any particular ideas or verses from the Torah that are resonating with you right now? Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about a couple things, you know, I'm thinking about the idea that we're all created in the image of the divine. We're all created in the image of God. That's actually a verse from the Torah that says that, and the Torah being our, our key holy text. And, you know, you don't have to believe in any kind of God or divine to see the value of that. You know, as a rabbi named Yitz Greenberg, drawing on Jewish tradition, so beautifully puts it, he says that what this means, the idea that we're created in the image of God, means that each of us is infinitely worthy, we're all totally equal, and we're each completely unique. And there's really not... I don't know, I don't know anyone, including me, who actually really 100% believes that because if we did, you know, when we walk by going back to the, the homeless man on the street and he says to us, hey, can you help me? You know, many of us, like me, we say, you know, I'm sorry, sir, not today. And we keep walking. If that had been Barack Obama who said, hey, I'm sorry, can you help me? I would have stopped and said, Barack Obama, <laughs> what are you doing here? If it were a celebrity, a CEO, you know, someone wearing a business suit, we'd probably stop throw a laptop on the street, probably stop and say, well, who, whose laptop is this? But we don't fundamentally think that people really are infinitely worthy and unique and totally equal. We think some people like Barack Obama are more worthy, and more unique and more equal. And we do that because we in our society tend to value people based on their status, their wealth, their appearance, their likes and retweets. And so this was incredibly radical idea in Judaism and this countercultural idea saying, no, no, no. Actually, every single person is infinitely worthy, has infinite divine worth. Anyway, I think about that right now as we are beginning to just see how this crisis is just, it is sort of ripping the top off of America. And, you know, if you didn't already, if you weren't already aware 
of the terror of the horrifying inequalities in our society. Like if you weren't already aware of that, you can't avoid it now. You basically rip the top off and you can yeah. see into people's lives. And this crisis reveals just how much so many people are struggling, how on the edge so many people are here in America and around the world. And, um, you know, each of them is a precious divine being. And how do we respond to that? It's, it's going to be, you know, it's always been very challenging. And now it's even more so. What's next for your Jewish journey? And what advice do you have for someone embarking on or taking a new step in their own journey, especially in such uncertain times? Yeah, so, you know, for me, what's, what's next is I would really love to write another book. Um, I'd love to really focus on God and spirituality because I think that's, you know, I, I tend to write the books that I wish I had now. And I'm, I'm reading a lot of books on God and they're very, they're like thoughtful and interesting, but a lot of them are, are pretty sophisticated um, Jewish books. So I, I'd like to write something that's a little bit more accessible and that's sort of more, you know, more like my first book, which is kind of, you know, thoughtful Jew like me really wrestles with what Jewish tradition has to say about God. And, you know, I don't, I want it not just to be for Jews, but for folks of all backgrounds, like what does Jewish tradition offer us about the divine? So I would love to think about that. In terms of, you know, learning folks of all backgrounds, you know, if you're a total beginner, now is actually a great time to start learning. You know, I, I think, you know, especially when I think so many of us are feeling so unsettled and anxious and fearful, you know, digging into this thousand year, thousand year tradition that has so much wisdom for how to be human can be really grounding right now. So I think my advice would be, I mean, you know, a little self-interested, but I, I wrote the book exactly for this reason. Like I wrote the book because I know that people don't have thousands of hours to read. Right? People are, especially right now, people are so stressed out trying to homeschool their kids and stay with their jobs and not lose their jobs. And this is a really stressful time. People don't have thousands of hours to learn or hundreds or even like one hour to learn. I wrote my book because I, I did that thousands of hours of learning and I, I wanted to distill it down just into a book form. You can read a few pages a night. It's really accessible. And then in the appendix of my book, I have a whole kind of map going forward for additional resources, a bunch of introductory books, and then books on different topics. So, you know, once you get a good introduction, you know, once you have a good grounding in Judaism, then you can say, okay, what, what excites you most, right? Are you really into spirituality? Great. Here are some books on theology and spirituality. Are you really excited about creating beautiful holidays or life cycle rituals or Shabbat? Great. Here are some books on that. There are so many different ways engage with Judaism. I think sometimes there's this misconception that if you want to be a deeply committed, passionate, learned Jew, you have to be an Orthodox Jew. Like, that's it. It's either, you know, if you're, if you're serious about Judaism, you are traditionally observant, and if not, you're nothing. And that's not true. You're passionate, committed, deeply learned and engaged Jews in every part of the denominational spectrum and no part of it, right? That That's just, I really want people to understand that there are so many there's so many like on ramps into Judaism. You know, maybe you're into yeah. food or culture or music. Great. Maybe you're into Israel. Great. Maybe you're into studying law. Great. Whatever it is, there's a way in for you. And so I think now is just a great time to start learning. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us again today. And <laughs> we hope one day to be able to have you visit us in person. Oh, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you guys. And, you know, I hope. I hope you guys stay healthy and safe. I hope everyone listening, everyone listening, just stays healthy and safe and just take care of yourself. This is a, this is a challenging time. 
Yes, it is. Thank you. Thank you so much. For more information about Sarah Hurwitz and her book, Here All Along, check out our show notes. Be sure to follow at Jewish Boston on social media and subscribe to the Vibe of the Tribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or TuneIn. You can also email us at podcast at jewishboston.com with your comments, feedback, and ideas for future topics and guests. Thanks, as always, to our editor, Jesse, and our composer, Brian. 